that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk. Stephen Means, Nathan Baird, and it's time to rewatch, rehash, retalk about Ohio State's 24 to 10 win, which, well, it's not retalking for me. This is the first time I get to talk about it on the pod. Nathan and Andrew talked about it after the game on Saturday night. Get the text 614 350 3315. I wasn't at the game, I was at a wedding. I wasn't around my phone that much because, you know, you're at a wedding and they tell you not to have your phone in your pockets when you're taking pictures and stuff. But, Listen, man, it was really helpful to know what was going on because I had no idea what was going on until I rewatched the game on, on Sunday. So get that text, 614-350-3315. Two-week free trial, $399 after that. I, as a person who was on the consumer side of things for the first time, it was good. I loved it. It was very helpful and let me know what was going on behind the scenes and the stuff that really matters, like whether Emeka Buka was going to play or not. You know, what happened with Lathan Ransom, which we'll get into on this pod as well, because that did not look good. There's a lot of different things we can talk about, but I want to start with Travion Henderson. 24 carries, 162 yards, and a touchdown. I think this might have been the best game of his career, and I don't think it's close. Yeah, I mean, when you factor in the competition level, this has to trump the Tulsa game, right? Um, And I, I think you make a good case for it, and... It comes at a time where Ohio State needed a spark from this running game in some fashion, whether it was him, whether it was the offensive line, like stepping up and and setting a new uh, standard, whatever. Like there needed to be something that kind of pushed this thing forward. And I I thought he was the thing. And I thought it even more so when you watch it on, on rewatch a little bit, because you you get to see more precisely because when you're watching a game, obviously, obviously we're watching it as it happens most, mm-hmm. for the most part. You miss a play here and there because you got to write posts and things. But you don't always get to like watch the replay. You don't always get to even in the stadium, especially let alone the one on 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 TV. And it's um, getting to watch it in, in the second time through. You see the some of the the subtle things that really do set him apart when it's going well for him from the other running backs in this group, frankly. And if they can now I'm just I, I too I'm cautious about going too far with it because through no fault of his own, legitimately, like it's just been hard for him to to stack those sort of games. But he mm-hmm. doesn't need to stack them this year. He 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 pulled this one out when they needed it on a night that they really needed it. The other way that it was kind of reminiscent of Tulsa was that the quarterback in the Tulsa game, C.J. Stroud in 2021, was also having a tough time of it. Also because of injury, we didn't know it at the time. Um, and I don't know that Kyle McCord, whatever's going on with his lower half, will end up being as substantial as what was happening in C.J. Stroud's upper half, and he'll need to like take a week off or whatever. But he was clearly hurting out there. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. for Trevion to step up the way he did and – really kind of carry the offense on, on a night like this. Um, you know, obviously, Marvin Harrison Jr. making some pretty spectacular catches too. But just the flow of the offense was through Trevion Henderson in this game. This is, I think, his seventh, sixth or seventh 100-yard game of his career. But I, I think what mattered is, yes, the level of competition, but also what it looked like. He was patient. He was mm-hmm. reading holes. He was exploding through the hole. Even there was one play where they <laughs> they ran up the middle, 
and he just like ran into a brick wall. <laughs> it was like, okay, well, that didn't work. But he exploded. He wasn't patient. He went for it. And I, I mapped it out. He played 52 snaps, and he got the ball 24 times on the ground, and then another four c- catches, which I thought was huge, all four yeah. of those catches. I was actually texting with Tishu about this as I was rewatching the game on Sunday because we Tishu and I have had this running thing the last couple of weeks that – you know, cashing whatever the over under is on caged over his receiving yards is just easy money because they get him the ball so much. We've talked about this in the past, Nathan, that sometimes it feels like caged over as a tight end, as good as he's been, is stealing away passing up op- catching opportunities for the running backs. I thought it flipped this week and that they made it an emphasis to get Trayvon Henderson involved, especially in that second quarter when I think he had three of his four catches, I believe. He had the drop too, but it's like, okay. You dropped the wheel route. Those are hard. But I thought that was one of the better throws for Kyle McCord of the night. And I thought the drop was the only negative thing Travion Henderson did the rest of the night. But I have it mapped out. 28 touches on 52 carry, fifty-two snaps, which basically means every other snap they gave him the ball, which I think more was than perfect. Yeah. It was yeah. perfect. Of those 24 carries, 10 of them went for three or less yards for a total of 12 yards. And they almost were sporadic though it's like they would be getting something going and then wisconsin would dial up the right thing and he'd get punched at the at the line of scrimmage he had three runs of 25 or more that's the 25 yarder the 30 yarder and the 33 yarder all three of which i think could have ended up in a touchdown so that's 88 yards on three plays and then the other 14 carries 62 yards that's 4.43 yards i think those are two the two most important numbers because you're going to have some runs every so often when you get the ball 25 times basically where you just get stopped at the line of scrimmage but what makes him different than Mayan Williams, Chip Trainum, even Dallin Hayden is that three runs for 88 yards is always on the table with him. So when he's doing the other 14, the way he's running those four, if he averages 4.43 yards per carry in a playoff game, and you mix that in with he's going to get explosive at some point, I think that's a good enough running game for what Ohio State wants to do offensively. Well, yeah, we've talked before in the last few weeks about how they just had to get out of those situations where they were getting one yard, two yards, one yard, negative yards. And he, as you said, did get stopped on occasion on those situations too. Remember, this is a guy coming back from a one-month absence. So I was a little bit surprised that he went. Yeah, obviously he's rested, but I didn't know if that meant that he was conditioned to the way they needed to be. But he has been working this whole time, right? We saw him at practice last week coming off the practice field last week we've seen him stretching before every game so i guess the stamina wasn't really an issue for him obviously um biggest workload of the year um but if you're gonna win those teams because those teams because you're playing other good teams that will occasionally stop your running back at the line of scrimmage then that's why you have to have the payoff it can't they were getting into too many games where they were like mired in those getting stuffed and this was happening in the second half of the Penn State game where they were just sort of mired in it and you've got to have that explosive element to pay off every so often those times where you are getting like stuck in the mud a little bit and he's the he's the best option to do that I know there's people out there that really like uh Dallin Hayden for kind of his consistency and his ability to hit holes and I don't dispute that but the I, I still think there's no dispute that who has the, like the the top end breakaway talent in that running back room. It's Trevian Henderson. And we've all sort of been just waiting for the combination of health and him um, having the realization of how best to use that. And again, 
if it is here, if this is like the beginning of a big surge down the stretch for him, just in terms of those things, frankly, I'm not even talking about usage. I'm just talking about consistent health and consistent uh, vision on the field. Then it's the thing that makes this offense. I'm saying it fixes everything that we've been kind of nitpicking about with the offense, but it certainly fixes a lot of things, right? Like it, it, it definitely raises the floor of what this offense can do week in and week out. I think him not playing now, it's, there's always the rust over rest conversation that you have in sports, but he had 14 carries for 104 yards and a touchdown against Notre Dame, including that 61 yard touchdown, which is where most of that came on. But that's a big game. And Travion Henderson showed up. Wisconsin on the road, your quarterback is not having his best day. Plus, he might be dealing with some health stuff, which, I, as you mentioned, we're going to get into that on this pod because I think that matters a lot more. But he had a big hit his best game, Dame, on a day when you needed your run game to get going. So him not playing against Maryland, I'm not gonna say Penn State because Penn State's a big game. He, if they if he could have gone, he probably should have gone. But Maryland, Purdue, him not playing in those games, if it means you get this in the games that are, matter the most, okay, you do do what you gotta do. <laughs> Do what you got to do, Travion Henderson, because the room is deep enough that I think they can get through Minnesota, Michigan State, and Rutgers without giving him the heavy load. With, with If he has five to ten carries in each of the next couple of weeks, I'm not going to look at this run game. I'm not going to look at Tony Offord sideways. I'm going to go, smart man, because you got to get him to Ann Arbor, and you got to get him on a playoff stage, because that's what matters most here, is that he does – what he did against Notre Dame and he did against Wisconsin when you play Michigan and whoever you play in the playoff if you get on that stage. Yeah, and so after the game, he talked about this past month in perspective of last year and said that, and this was, I thought, a little bit of a contrast to the way he talked about it. You can tell me if I'm wrong because I know that you have talked to him more about this and have done more reporting about this. But he insinuated that because I thought the way he talked about last year was I was telling them something was wrong and they kept wanting me to play mm-hmm. and the, or that they is, didn't understand how hurt it was. Well, the way he the talked Saturday was that it was that he had pushed himself back out there too much last year and through the injury. And that he was, he should have known he was hurt and then he needed to take a step back and instead he kept trying to play. Now, that may be two sides of the same coin when you start, start talking about the, um, how, how messy conversations can get. Mm-hmm. But it, it did seem like he was taking, I guess the end result being that like this year, he wasn't concerned about not playing in those weeks. He was most concerned about being to not putting himself in a situation where coming back would then set him back. And that explains, I guess, why he we've seen him doing the work he's done, but yet he still didn't get on the field. It may frankly explain that. And the Jackson Smith and Jigby experience may explain what's going on with the Mecca Ibuka right now, yeah. why he's not getting on the field that they have believed in their depth enough, but also a player, an individual like Trevian Henderson, um, seeing the big picture of needing to be on the field. Like it's not, it wouldn't have been worth it for him to play against Penn state last week. If he couldn't play against Michigan. Right. 
And that was sort mm-hmm. of the equation that happened last year. And he was trying to get back on the field for those midseason games. And by as a result, and, and, and he, he was hurt so bad that maybe having to have surgery, maybe that would have had to happen anyway. And he couldn't have been able to play late in the season. But as a result of pushing it, it seems that was a contributing factor to why he was on the sideline for the Michigan game. He was on the sideline for the Georgia game. And he wants to play in those games. And I think you're right. I think Ohio State has depth at running back now. Mine Williams is is banged up again, but that's how deep what, everything is. Was he there? I actually don't know that. Okay. I, I don't know that. Um, I, my son, I don't believe he was. Um, okay. I forgot to actually look at the uh, travel roster for the game for that reason. Um, it happens. But, um, but he, I, I think he, uh, but even without, even without Mayan, you've still got three other guys, four other guys that you believe can go out there and handle carries. And I would expect that these next three weeks, if they go according to Ohio State's plan, although I think Ohio State has to have a little bit of a different plan than it has in the recent past in these situations, because you would go into games where you're favored by 18, 20, 25 points in recent seasons, and you knew that that meant, oh, well, then you're going to be up 35 to 10 in the third quarter. And you can Mm -hmm. you, you think of that differently than if you're up 21 to nothing in the third quarter, I think so. Are you going to find ways to incorporate your depth earlier in the game to help take the load off Trayvon Henderson? Because the score is going to, even though the lead is just as comfortable, may not feel like it in the moment um, when you would usually like empty your bench. You know what I mean? That makes perfect sense. Last year, they were... And both sides, whether you're talking Jackson with the Jigba situation, Travion Henderson situation, you want to keep going down the line. Everybody handled it wrong because everybody was trying to get back on the field. And I do think there is a responsible cautiousness going on this year with players that, as you mentioned, last year is probably guiding that a little bit. But I, I, I do wonder, though, what because Rutgers might be the ver- best test subject for this because Rutgers is decent you know they're, they're bowl eligible they might and then Chiano's definitely got some stuff off up his sleeve to you know try to stick around in the game longer than Rutgers maybe should stick around in this game how did you use Travion Henderson how quickly do you go to Chip Trainum, who was the number two back against Wisconsin and you brought up Dallin Hayden Chip Trainum, <laughs> six carries for 13 yards <laughs> I think Dallin Hayden would have gotten 26 yards on those six carries, but that's, that's neither here nor there. That's a, that's, you know, you're nitpicking at that point, but how quickly do you go to chip? Do you go to your number three earlier in the game or do you do what you did against Wisconsin, which I thought was impressive. Eight carries for Trayvon Henderson in the first, first quarter, they tried to establish him early and then started trying to get the pass game going in the second. And then in the third quarter, when Kyle McCord's clearly dealing with something, they just kind of leaned on Travion Henderson. 11 through 24, those carries all came in the second half. So I do like the way this this played out. But I think that's interesting coming into this week. If Travion's healthy, I'm assuming he plays. But do you go to Chip on this third series? Or do you open up the second quarter with Chip Trainum? Like how, how much of a usage do you get with Travion Henderson in a game where you shouldn't have to give him the ball 28 times to win the game? Like I think they had to against Wisconsin. Flip it to the offensive line. I think this was their best game as a run blocking group. As a run blocking group, yes, I would say so. Yeah, 
I, I felt that way in the moment. Um, I thought it looked still pretty solid on on review. The the thirty three yard touchdown run that Trevian Henderson had was uh, some really nice blocking there. I mean, we talked again. It, it's all about seeing something one week, saying that's a problem, and then seeing them correct it, and then seeing them sustain it. And you saw against Penn State, early in the Penn State game, I thought there was good run blocking, and they didn't sustain it, and Penn State's front eventually started winning a lot of those battles. I thought you saw against Wisconsin a more sustained winning of those opportunities. And that 33-yard touchdown run was the best example of seeing offensive linemen getting into the second level and taking on those linebackers and opening up those holes and giving Trevin Henderson, getting him into the second level before then the Jets go on. Um, and I think that's important because sometimes it's, you've got to give a guy, you, you don't want to talk about vision all you want, but sometimes the vision is talking about what you were talking about before. It's like being a little bit, not hesitant, but being, um, being smart about how you're approaching the hole, making sure you see what you need to see and then going, and you've got to have the right blocking to make that happen. So I thought that was a good example of that it shows what, you know, Josh Fryer, who I still think might be a guard at, at, at heart in some ways, mm -hmm. um, the way that he pulled around and blocked on that play reminded you of that. Uh, it's why we thought coming into this season, it's why we've been so surprised that the run blocking has been behind the pass blocking because when you looked at who they had you know their two most experienced linemen were going to be guards you had josh fryer who has extensive experience as a guard and you would think could you know would be an asset in that way you know carson hensman grew up and developed as a offensive lineman in a very run heavy offense just those four guys alone you thought would maybe be able to really kind of lead the the run blocking crusade to some extent and it just hasn't ever really meshed together this year. So this was definitely, I think, a positive step. But I also think it's fair at this stage to say, but now what's it look like next week? Because there have been good weeks and there have been a step back. And it'll be a good week and there's a step back. And all that we've ever asked, all that anyone, I think, has ever asked that analyzes this team, all the only expectation we've put on, whether it's the run blocking, whether it's Kyle McCord, who we'll talk about later, whether it's even the running backs to some extent, it's just about consistency. Even the defense, the defense last year was better than it was the year before, but it didn't consistently make plays, and that's why they were getting beat behind on things. So I think it's just a matter of, can this offensive line play with the consistency that it showed against a Wisconsin team that is, is frankly not a bad defensive team, not a great defensive team, but not a bad defensive team, and to go out and have that kind of success on the road in that environment, I think that was a positive step forward for this rushing attack. I thought this was a real step because we, I think we've been here before where it felt like, oh, the offensive line had a good day run blocking. But it's like, yeah, but look what they did it against. And then the very next week, it's like, see, they didn't really do it against anybody. I, Wisconsin, I think, was a top 50, top 40 run defense coming into this game. Now, obviously, those numbers have been thrown away because Travion Henderson had 160 plus yards on Saturday, but I thought they were a quality group and this is a good quality step. And now you're going to play a Rutgers team who is, I think of this year's Rutgers, Rutgers team, not in the past. I think there's similar levels of defense this year. And so can you build on it until you get to the Michigan game? Cause none of the teams you're going to play now are anywhere close to what Michigan is, but they're good steps that you can take for this run game. Now the pass pro that's, I mean, I don't think it was bad. I almost want to save that for the Kyle McCord because yeah. some of it is him 
And I, so it's some of it's, I don't know if it's in his control that it's him. And that we can save that for the common core thing. Two more offensive things. One, did like Trayvon Henderson elaborate on he took a cheap shot against Notre Dame or was he just kind of like a one-off? No, he really threw it out there as a one-off. He said it was early in the Notre Dame game. Okay. And if you go back and look, there's a play early in the second quarter where um, a guy um, sort of takes a dive and, and makes contact with him after a play. So I suppose that's what he was talking about. It's There's some gray area there because Josh Fryer was flagged for a play earlier this season that I guess the whistle hadn't blown on that play yet. It's just it, there are some some gray areas when in the heat of battle out there, I guess, sometimes. But that's what he but it, it was surprising to hear him describe it as something early in the game because he obviously then went out and played the rest of the game, except he wasn't the one on the field at the end of the game. But I didn't think of that as being an injury reason why they mm-hmm. wanted to train him in there to take that one yard shot. Um, so, again, coming out of that game, you didn't necessarily think anything of it. And then then he doesn't play for another month. Um, so I think that's the play. It, it, it jibes with what we were hearing, that it maybe been an upper body thing that was. Mm-hmm. So he didn't elaborate. If I were speculating, was it a rib issue? Was it? I think I think I mentioned this to the Texas on Wednesday when we saw him. He had like some extra pad, padding protecting his rib. So I do wow. think it was a rib issue. Yeah. It looks yeah, like so a, a, a torso something. So like you just start thinking like, well, what other. What what is in there that would have been like so mm-hmm. brittle that it could have been a problem that they had to hold him out for? And that would have maybe been my one. And I don't know if that meant it was just a pain tolerance thing or if they were waiting for something to completely heal. Maybe because he's he's been pretty open about the extent and nature of the injuries in the past. So maybe that's something he will expound on more. Just in that moment, all he said was uh, that it was this this what he called it, what he deemed a cheap shot. And which I think okay. you actually, if you when you look back on it, um, yeah, I think I would probably call it something neighboring a cheap okay. shot too. Like, well, I don't know if the I don't know if it was done with intent. Again, I can't be yeah. inside people's head, but it, it looked pretty. It, there was something there. So, um, but I think it's it, it's so tough because you you try to evaluate these guys just based on now we've had three years of Trevion and. He has often had issues getting on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, he had like the weird game his freshman year where something happened during warmups, right? Um, or or there was yeah. a game where he like played only like one series and then was done for the night. Uh, that might have been might have been Rutgers even his freshman year. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, because that would have been in New Jersey. I can't remember. But there was there was definitely one game where it was like even though he played every game, he didn't miss any games, but like mm-hmm. he all but missed that game. And then obviously yeah. the, the the in and out of lineup last year, though, again, that was a recurring single thing that finally got taken up care of after the year. And it sounds like this thing was also like a, a one time, one problem that had to be fully healed before he could come back. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, on one hand, yes, he's had trouble being, uh, it, it, you would, you would like, as we talk about him as an NFL draft prospect, eventually durability is going to come up. Like it just is anybody who misses this many games, durability is going to come up, but is it, you know, there is a difference between guys who play a tough position where you take a lot of contact and get hurt and guys who, um, are easy or prone to 
<laughs> for for small things to keep them out of the lineup. And I think there's a lot of guys on this team who we see like you know strapping up and going out there and playing through things. And his have just and he was trying to do that last year. So I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here. It's just like it's it's I, I I try to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe a lot because I I think that it is legitimate that he's been hurt. Um, but it also, it's why I was saying before that like, but it's also then fair to say, let's wait and see that, you know, what opportunity he has to replicate a game like last mm-hmm. Saturday. Okay. You weren't on the big Thursday pod. And I think I said this to the text. I think Marvin Harrison Jr. is the best Heisman Trophy candidate in the country. And I told him I would elaborate on the reasons why when we got to this pod. He's got 48 catches for 889 yards and eight touchdowns. He's had at least 100 yards in all but the Indiana game, which is weird, and we have recounted that if some things go a little differently, he probably does have 100 yards in that game. And then the Notre Dame game where they sold out to make sure he did not touch the ball, and then he also hurt his ankle. The other games, 160 against Youngstown State, 126 against Western Kentucky, 163 against Maryland, 105 against Purdue, and then 162 against Penn State, and then six catches for 123 and two touchdowns against Wisconsin. It's not even just the numbers anymore with him. I think you can make a case that Ohio State has two losses right now if Marvin Harrison Jr. is not on their team. And I don't know if you go to that length that far with other teams right now, maybe Penix at Washington, but even it's just like the Oregon game is is such a big deal for him. But outside of that, Washington's just been kind of rolling. Marvin Harrison Jr. up until with the Wisconsin game had just been Ohio State's offense, especially when the quarterback play has been so up and down the way it has been this year. I don't know if anybody else has the case of not only am I arguably the best player in the country, especially at my position, it's not even a question, but my value is so high that it's almost quarterback level. It's not quite that, but it's almost that same level of you take that dude off the field. Ohio state might have two losses. Uh, I think there's a very strong case to be made, especially with the Mecca Buka being out, they wouldn't have beaten Penn state because the rest of that offense just wasn't, clicking so i would hear that i mean the narrative about the notre dame game i know there's all this uh well because of the attention paid to him um the, the notre dame strategy worked notre dame's defense should have won that game like notre dame did what it had to do like notre dame did a great job limiting marvin Harrison jr before he ever had the ankle problem that night um that's kind of the the thing that's still hanging out there a little bit for this team is that the next team that can do that you know do you, does your answer yield more than 17 points because it might have to because the next team that does that might have a, a, a an offense that can do more things than Notre Dame's can. So I I I, it would, I would say one loss. It has probably saved them from one loss to this point. Um, but I think that there's a stronger case being made right now. In and it's along the lines of what you're saying because the one thing coming into this season we had higher expectations for this offense. And when we talked about Marvin Harrison Jr. as a Heisman candidate and why or why he might or might not be in that mix, mm-hmm. one of the things that we brought up was, well, is he really going to have like the, the storybook uh, asset in his favor? You know what I mean? Is he going to have the narrative in his favor? 
And because if this offense just does, you know, 80, 85% of what it's been doing, even takes a slight step back, and he just has a season that statistically replicates what he did last year, uh, that's not going to be that convincing from a mm-hmm. from a narrative standpoint, from like the from the story standpoint, right? Because this is all about the story of the season. That's what the Heisman is. It's it, this idea that it's about picking who the very best player is, is is nonsense. It's about picking, as Doug said very early on, and when we were having these debates, it's about who's the most Heismany. Uh, but the way that he becomes more Heismany is the this offense hasn't done what we expected, and that they have to rely on him and his specific talent for being able to catch anything that's thrown at him um, when they absolutely need it um, is, is becoming the reason why this team might be a national championship contender Um, that, that just relying on him will, will get them there. So I think that that is how that's the way that his case has been enhanced this year. There's some other people that have the story on their side. I've, been a Michael Penix skeptic in the past from a mm-hmm. passing standpoint his numbers are better than Caleb Williams were last year and they've already beaten Oregon mm-hmm. and, and like if they end up like running the table in the Pac-12 and he's the guy standing on top of that mountain I think that is probably going to be a compelling case for some people I would still say Marvin Harrison Jr. is a better football player but I think that's going to be a, a comp- <clears throat> excuse me a compelling thing for people uh, the J.J. McCarthy thing is still hanging out there for mm-hmm. some some of the same reasons. And now he's going to have like the whole, um, I hate to use the word, but like adversity thing in his favor. Like, oh, you like <laughs> persevered through the world was against you, whatever. I'm not saying that I think that that is legitimate. I'm just telling you how there are some really stupid Heisman voters. And that's the kind of, that's how things that they think about. So there, there are definitely other people out there that can equalize or maybe even have an even better like story in their favor. Um, but coming into the season, just being the best receiver wasn't automatically going to put him in great contention for this, because as we've said before, it's not about the receiver thing. But honestly, the the fact that Emeka Buka has been gone the past few weeks and that he has had to carry this passing game is, and, and it happened in two pretty visible games. I mean, certainly the Penn State game was very visible. Wisconsin mm-hmm. game also visible to a, a lesser extent, but you're still prime time and everything. Like, I, I don't know. I think, I think that I don't know that he would be number one on my ballot right now. Actually, he might be number one on my ballot. I don't know if I think he would be the, the guy favored to win it. And I know he's not like, you can go look at the betting odds. He's still not favored to win it, but um, mm-hmm. he's, he's the way the season is playing out is making it more plausible than I thought at the beginning of the year, I guess is the best way to say it. I'm just, I'm starting to have a hard time figuring out who does what Notre Dame did to him again. Because if you would have said after the Notre Dame game, who else is going to do this, you probably would have picked Penn State first, right? I mean, for one, they've just got the talent to do it already. And then you throw in the fact that Mecca doesn't play, and it just didn't happen at all. In fact, you probably left more left that game with more questions about Kalen King's first round talent status than anything else. So I don't Rutgers is not going to do it. Michigan State's definitely not going to do it. I, Minnesota, maybe Michigan does it, but I don't. They don't have a Benjamin Morrison who, yes, you're doubling him all night, but at least one of those guys got to be a dude. And maybe Will Johnson is taking that step as a former five star. But I'm just having a hard time 
figuring out who takes away Ohio State's only reliable pass threat right now. And Ohio State knows it, which is why they almost spam him the ball four or five times typically in an opening drive. So I'm it's he's their only offense. Everybody knows he's their only offense. Now, Travion tr- changes that variable a little bit if he's going to do what he did against Wisconsin. But for most of the season, well, he's Mecca been their only offense. Yeah, Emeka as well. So, But as of right now, eight games through, he's been their only consistent and healthy offense. Everybody's known he's been their only healthy and consistent offense, and yet nobody's had an answer for it. And that's that variable along with Penix, I think, has the best case to, to match that. But also, like, the Pac-12 is still pretty good. So he's got to get through that still. And because right now he's kind of on the Hendon Hooker pace of, oh, he's the hot name right now. He's the older quarterback in the system that's throwing it all around the yard. But can he get through the season? While Marvin Harrison Jr. and J.J. McCarthy, we thought that was going to be a Kyle McCord, J.J. McCarthy conversation of, okay, you can't win the Heisman without beating Michigan. I think it's now a Marvin Harrison, J.J. McCarthy conversation of the winner of that game probably goes to New York. Probably, just also based on the way that season's gone statistically for Kyle. It's hard to see that that would mm-hmm. conversation get back in there. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't again, I've been a Penix skeptic. I wouldn't call him Penn and Hooker quite yet. I just think he came into the year a little bit more on the radar than that. Washington was yeah. a little bit more on the radar coming into the year as a team that had this this outside chance of of making a run. Um, oh, man, I I guess because I think Dylan Gabriel's teams, out now. Well, as, Oklahoma, as to what, like, that wasn't yeah, good. Yeah, as to whether teams, no, no, Dylan Gabriel's out. Like as to whether teams are going to like take this shot. At, at doing that again, I, I don't know why they wouldn't to some extent. I'm surprised that nobody maybe has tried it as much. And, t- and it's not that teams don't ever try to put two guys over the top of him. Uh, but you have also seen since the Notre Dame game an increase in the amount of times that Ohio State runs him through the slot. And there was a, a, that first touchdown he scored on Saturday was a tremendous example of what he can be coming out of the slot because you just run him underneath that second level. And now the, the guy who's over the top of him, the corner who's supposed to be following him, just gets caught up in traffic and you're done. Like what? It's just pitch and catch at that point and it's over. And, you know, Marvin had, had already coming out of last year been talking about wanting to get better at yards after the catch. And that was really before the slot conversation really amped up. But this is what makes him even more dangerous that, you know, the yards after the catch on the perimeter stuff, the downfield stuff is is good. But so many in, in those, <clears throat> excuse me, in those instances, so many more times you've got a receiver right, or a, a DB right on you. So you you outplay him to make the catch, but he can take you down pretty quickly. But when they start using him in the middle of the field like this, that's where you really start to see that yak become a big asset. And I, I'm really, really intrigued by what else can happen over these last four games, like building towards Michigan, what they can do with him. In, in that scenario, especially because we don't know, like with Emeka Buka, how close to 100% he is the day he comes back. So does by by putting Marvin in the slot more, uh, just a few more snaps per game, does, are you just saving some wear and tear on Ibuka as he like comes back into to, to full form? I think that's something to keep in mind. But th- th- that that first touchdown was just, that was everything you've been looking for, for how they would use him out of the slot. Because it's all of a sudden you found a, a situation where like the most dangerous player in college football or one of them 
now has the ball in his hands in the middle of the field and nobody's around him. And they're like, now what happens? And the more they can replicate that, you know, that's when the, the ceiling starts to come off the offense a little bit. They've really started taking advantage of that with Emeka Buka being out. He's played 256 pass snaps this year. He had 422 last year. Of those 422, only 58 of them were in the snap in the slot. This year at 256, 55 of them have already been in the slot. And his yards after the catch are just like 323 yards on the season last year. Yards after the catch. He's at 343 through eight games this year for 7.1 yards per catch after the catch comparison to 4.2. So he's he's done that. He's improved at yards after the catch. I asked him in the offseason, like, how do you do that? He's just, it's a mindset thing, which I don't know if there's really a drill to get better at not getting tackled as soon as you get catch the ball. But whatever he did, it's working because he's doing more after the catch, and they're also exploiting matchups with him. I think that's it offensively, not quarterback situation. And we'll save that. We're going to take a break here, and then we'll come back, and we'll flip it, and we'll talk defense, where I think it's just going to be more positivity. We've been a, People have said that we've been very negative on this pod, so I, I guess it's fair that we're being completely positive on this pod so far. So when we come back, we'll talk defense in Ohio State's 24-10 win over Wisconsin. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back here on Buckeye Talk. Stephen Means, Nathan Baird after Ohio State's 24-10 to win over Wisconsin. This is your rewatch Monday pod. Nathan, you would know because you were there. I, I mean, I saw what the TV was allowing me to see. But Nathan Ransom, non-contact injury. He's basically hopping off the field, taking himself out of the game. The, the announcer said that they put him in a wheelchair after they put him in a tent for a second to take him up the ramp, and then they flash the camera to him, and he's walking. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's a good sign that you're walking and not being wheeled <laughs> off the field, I guess. But then he's like back on the sideline for the rest of the game. You were there. Just take me through what you guys were seeing, and then what did Ryan Day have to say about Lathan after the game? Ryan Day had almost nothing to say about it after the game. He said he didn't okay. really even see it and didn't have any update on it. So we'll see if he says anything on the, the Monday Night Radio show, but we'll, he'll certainly get asked about it Tuesday. Um, and yeah, it was a combination of like a lot of like things that looked really terrible for him and then things that make you think, oh, maybe this isn't so bad. Like, was it precautionary to put him on the cart and take him up the ramp? For people who don't know, at Wisconsin, so they're on the visiting sideline, so you're farther away from the ramp up to the locker room anyway and then it, it is a ramp and i could see why and especially in those circumstances why they don't want him walking up um an incline like that but then i saw him coming out kind of trotting back to the field he was even doing some stuff on the sideline that if this had been a game in the balance maybe maybe he would have gone in i don't know it looked like he was sort of testing whatever had happened, ankle, whatever it was, he was testing it out. Now, in the time that he was gone, Ohio State scored again. That was the Trevin Henderson touchdown run to go up by two touchdowns. And at that stage of the game, with how little pressure Wisconsin's offense was putting on this defense, 
um, it made sense to not put him back in the game. I think that was another, even if it was just precautionary, I think it made a lot of sense. So long story short, we, we, it looked bad. It looked like the kind of thing that if it's close, why would you play him against Rutgers? Probably. Mm-hmm. You, I would think that they will be very cautious with it. It's, this is the stage, like they were pretty banged up. Like we didn't talk about Cade Stover in that first segment, had no targets. And I think the fact that he's banged up right now was a little bit of a factor in that. He was supposed to have been the one, we'll talk about that, I guess, in the common court thing that was targeted on that uh, interception in the red zone. And I wonder if he's fully healthy, if he gets through that and, and is there and wasn't able to because he's wearing that brace on his leg right now that I think mm-hmm. is does seem to be affecting him. But I mean, they're already without a Buka. Uh, Mayan Williams, I checked. He didn't make the trip. Um, okay. You know, other guys are banged up on this team. And so that's a, I would be very curious if, if the status report is a little bulkier on Saturday as a result this week, um, especially it's another road game. So if you're going to travel a guy, um, you know, you kind of want to, he, he really needs to be close if you're going to travel him, I think. So, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a thing that where they, they take, whether it's ransom or some of these other guys that need a break and say, you know, they've got three weeks. Uh, they should be able to, they kind of maybe have to win some of these games without them because you have to have your best 22 to beat Michigan. JC Tweemaloa took a bad hit from Jack Sawyer and his hip. I know, I know he came back into the game, but I am wondering how that feels on Sunday and especially on Monday when the adrenaline yeah. wears off and you realize that another six foot four, 260 pound man rammed his head into your hip. So I, I there's going to be a lot of guys when we're in there on Wednesday evening that we're going to be checking just to see whether or not they practice or not. Get the text 614-350-3315. All that information going to your phone first before anywhere else. Two week free trial, three ninety nine. after that. I am under the assumption that maybe Lathan doesn't play against Rutgers because I'm not sure you need him to play against Rutgers because that didn't look, even if he's on the sideline, as you say, trying to work it out, that didn't look good when no one's around right. you and you're hopping off the field. It didn't look good. So I am just going to operate under that assumption and be pleasantly surprised if I'm wrong. Gladly I mean, surprised if I'm wrong. Yeah, there are some tests that they can do just on the sideline like there's um, – with like knee injuries, they know there are things that they can do, take a knee mm-hmm. and like move and like, Oh, that's an ACL like, or, or not. And mm-hmm. so maybe they're, you know, maybe they were able to do an evaluation on him. And I don't think it was, I don't think it was a knee thing with him. I'm just using it as an example, but right. they're able to do an evaluation on him that says, okay, it looks like things are good structurally. So then he walks back to the sideline, but that doesn't mean things are good enough for him to play on it. And I think the Sunday thing is important. Like remember, you know, Marvin Harrison coming out of the Notre Dame game, the way he talked about that, I don't know if he would have been able to play the following week if they had mm-hmm. had a game the following week. And because just of the swelling and everything that goes into it. So Sunday morning is a big deal. And even if Ryan Day knew more about it Saturday night, I don't know how much more he could have told us from with any sort of accuracy. You know what I mean? So because that was that was also a fourth quarter injury. It wasn't something mm-hmm. that happened earlier in the game where you might have had somebody reporting back to you as to, hey, here's what's going on. Um he, he, we we may have known more about it than he did, frankly, just because we were watching it happen in front of us and then watching the the TV if we could. So yeah, I, I, he's just such an important piece, right? Like he, I was surprised when I looked at the box score and he only had three tackles in that game because it just felt like he was a lot more active than mm-hmm. that. Now I thought he also had um, a, a couple of of misses in this game, um, but 
for the most part, he's just been such an important like downhill attacking piece in this defense, and uh, they need him. And he makes their, their defense a lot better. So I think if if it's anything that needs some time, I think they'll give it some time because there's other capable safeties that they can beat the next three opponents with. they they got to have him back for Michigan. I think it might be time to play Sonny Styles at Bandit because Jordan Hancock looks awesome at nickel, and I think yeah. those two can play together. They use him as a weapon against Jordan Hancock, and he got home on a sack. Now, <laughs> I just I don't know what Wisconsin was trying to do on that play, but they play action, fake the reverse, and they never – it was just too much. It was way too long developing of a play. But Jim Knowles called a blitz at the perfect time with Jordan Hancock, just like he did against Penn State. And this time, Jordan Hancock stuck Braden Locke. I think if you had to have a situation where Lathan Ransom can't play, Sonny Styles, his first introduction to this defense was at Bandit last year. And then we've seen him at times in garbage minutes playing Bandit. If you think he's ready for it, I think you put Sonny at bandits, you keep Josh Proctor at your adjuster, and you just play Jordan Hancock the entire game at nickel. So, yeah, I mean, a couple things. Like, we – that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Styles repped a lot at Bandit in the spring. He was, like, playing Bandit with the twos in the spring, if you remember. And at the time, we were like, well, that means he's not going to play, right? Because he's behind Lathan Ransom. And then they they were just – they had a process that they were working him through, and it it, it worked out in the long run. but. Yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense. I think he can handle that at, against the level of opponent that they're facing the next three weeks, right? I think you want someone better at coverage when you have to go up against Michigan. Um, and I think you probably maybe also want Sonny Styles in the game at nickel for when they play Michigan, because that's a different level of opponent too, But in, in that regard. But I think it makes a lot of sense that if, if, if Ransom had to miss time, I think he's the most natural guy that you would, I think that is how you configure it. I think you would put him at at Bandit and um, just make Hancock the full time, because you're starting to you're starting to gain more trust in some other options that you have at corner if you need them. Also, and then on top of that, Jahad Carter's hurt right now. Doesn't look like that's going to be a short term thing. I wouldn't expect him back by this week, for instance. And you know they tried Malik Hartford in a bigger way earlier this year and mixed results. I don't know if they think that he would be the the better option there right now. On Jordan Hancock, it's funny because, as people may remember, that was my drive-the-bus guy before the year. This is not what I thought that was going to look like, by the way. Like, I thought, uh, here's the best way. Like, I thought Jordan Hancock was going to be what Sean Wade wanted to be as an outside corner in 2020. Mm -hmm. And instead, he just turned into kind of maybe what Sean Wade was in 2019. It's just like a really... Really, really good nickel safety. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 he is actually but he's capable enough to do both. Like he mm-hmm. actually can play outside if they need him to. But it's why the like look at how huge and we've talked about how the the depth that they've built at corner, how important that is. But how massive is bring Davis and Igbenosin in this year as a transfer? Because it sets up everything that they're trying to do with the back end of this defense right now. Like by letting him just be a starting corner and play every rep. And we kind of looked sideways at that when the season started a little bit, like, Mm -hmm. really, is he better than Jordan Hancock? And I don't know that he is a better football player than Jordan Hancock, but he does what they need him to do at that corner position and him locking that down 
apart from Denzel Burke in these games is um, it just really opens a lot of things up for now what they can and want to do with Jordan Hancock. I was and and to like now just sort of turn nickel safety almost over to Jordan Hancock for a whole game is is another step beyond what they have been doing. I think Jordan Hancock is more versatile than Davis and Igbenosin, and that probably played a role into how they ended up with J- Davis and Igbenosin and Denzel Burke just being the starters because you knew you were going to use Jordan Hancock all over the field. But also, that physicality, I mean, we noticed it from the first time we saw him in person when we walked in there for that spring practice. That's paying off, especially since he's the field safety. I mean, field corner a lot of the times where he is, I mean, he's wrapping up. He's he, You get a lot of action thrown your way when you're playing opposite of Denzel Burke right now and none of it has turned into a bunch of explosive plays on Davis and Igmanosin. He's actually second on this team in solo tackles behind Tommy Two Thumbs with 25. Like he it's he's been secure even if at times he's been overly physical. So I think that's he's almost the perfect guy to have opposite of Denzel Burke with the way Denzel is playing, which I, I said this to Texas. Denzel just picked up right where he left off before he got hurt. They tried him a couple of times. There was one where you probably could have called DPI or OPI on the play, so I'm glad the refs just let it rock, and he got the pass breakup. He's just, I mean, he was hurt. He missed a week. He came back, and he's awesome again. So the cornerbacks, that revelation has been a breath of fresh air for a defense, especially with Jim Knowles, who's starting to get a little bit more and more aggressive by week. My only, I think, complaint, they can't put Cameron Martinez out there anymore. It's it's. I was so so. Here's well. First of all, Cameron Martinez played like six snaps. People were like he really did. losing their mind over this. Because like he, he was six like snaps active in like that, five of them. That's why. Well, but he played, he played six snaps against a team that that can't that move the ball on literally like two of its twelve series. So let's let's not forget that part. They also were playing more defensive backs like you know jordan hancock talked about this after the game mm-hmm. that they they thought wisconsin would come out with like more four wide receiver sets they had worked on a set where they were going to play more more dbs to counter that and mm-hmm. i i get why cam martinez is the next guy up there like you're, is, is cam martinez your sixth or seventh defensive back right now when you've got other guys banged up and, and jihad carter in the mix too then i i i, I get that so do i think that this what we saw Saturday portends Cam Martinez playing a lot more. No, I don't. I think there was some stuff here that was specific to this example. Um, but you, I mean, he is a defensive back on your team. Like you have to, this is an, also an opportunity to get him into a game and, 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 and work through stuff. I mean, it's yeah. kind of how that happens. It's part of the process sometimes. So if they had started Cam Martinez, I would have looked sideways at that. Um, the fact that he played six snaps in this game doesn't like concern me because again, I think it was more about this specific matchup. Now, I guess you could, you, it begs the question, the next time they want to go to six defensive backs, should he be one of those six? Um, I think the problem is you're, it was only six snaps and it was only noticeable because a lot of the things that the defense did were so well that now you're looking for problems and you got to nitpick somewhere. I don't know who you go to if Jair Brown is not healthy because I think he would be a quality dime corner for them, which is what he would be in those looks. But if he's not healthy, you're not putting Jermaine Matthews in there as a true freshman. 
and we haven't we just haven't seen Ryan Turner. And depending on the opponent, sometimes the the the, the dime guy is just Sunny Style stays out there with Jordan Hancock. But I think there's not enough for starters. You're right. There's not enough teams on the schedule, at least on the regular season schedule, who are going to play four wide receiver sets enough for this to be a long term answer. I think for me, it just stood out because it was one of the shiny things on something. It was a shiny car, and here's a spec. And you're comparing it to the last time they had to throw a guy out there in a role, and that was Jermaine Matthews, who a team did go at, and he held his own. Jermaine Matthews, by the way, didn't play this past game. Uh, yeah, that's so not that's to be expected, was, though. <laughs> yeah, after all the ink that was spilled about him um, uh, f- fully back into a backup role. It's just, again, if Cam Martinez does have experience in that role, Again, I, I it's not something that I I'm like I, I'm 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 worrying about too much, and I would caution fans like don't don't let this be a thing that bothers you too much. The one caveat is like if there is someone like listen, I guess here's the other way I would say it: they had Jermaine Matthews in the game last week in a big role. They had Malik Hartford start a game earlier this year. Like they are mm-hmm. not afraid to put a younger guy on the field over a veteran if that guy is beating them out. So if there was a guy who more deserve to be on the field right now in that six DB situation, they would be playing him. Like we have, like mm-hmm. there's, this isn't, this isn't a couple years ago where it seemed like they were going to play experience over youth, no matter what. That is not what, how this deep, this not how this defense has, has made personnel choices now for either of these past two seasons. So I think if there were a better guy, I think he'd be on the field. So if, if, you know, if, if Cam Martinez is is not the answer, um, the other answer hasn't shown itself on the on the field. But I also think I'm, there's not. I, we've talked too much already about Cam Martinez yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was such a small part of this game, and it, I, I feel yeah. sometimes I feel bad for guys because like he gets magnified the fact that they were on mm-hmm. the field for six snaps out of a game like this where uh, it was just such a small part of it, and and the 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 totality of what's going on with this defense right now. Um, definitely overshadows that a couple more positive things we're making our way down jack sawyer really good night for him you know six tackles four of them solo he had the forced fumble early in the game great day for him tyleek williams continues to be dominant jt trumalowow no stats again other than the i think he had the qb hurry but i mean he's jt trumalowow i think you feel him every single game at this point even if the stats aren't necessarily there but also uh did he how did he look coming out of the locker room after halftime when they were like going through war? If it, it, maybe you didn't see it at all, but that was a I, rough hit to take. Okay, because I'm wondering how much that hit maybe impacted him the rest of the game. It, it definitely could have. I mean, there was a play earlier in this game where he he like just shot out of a cannon and got in the backfield yeah. and then just didn't wrap the guy. There were yeah. like two or three times in this game mm-hmm. where Ohio State didn't wrap guys. And if it was against an offense that is is a little bit more dynamic, that would be a problem. Um, although, again, don't don't let that take away from the times that they definitely did wrap guys that that goal line mm-hmm. stand where they wrapped up Braylon Allen just fine and kept him out of the end zone. And uh, so that that that's I guess the 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 bigger deal. Um, you know, I, it was after a, a week, the couple weeks that he had had. I think maybe we had gotten into a a mindset where we were just expecting 
a, a box mm-hmm. score to get filled up a little bit. And the reality of it is that at some point, you know, teams are going to also, you know, counter to take that away. I thought Jack Sawyer might have had his best game, or it's certainly one of his very best games mm-hmm. as an Ohio State player so far. Uh, I think it was six tackles. He forced that fumble. He was in on that one of those stops uh, of Allen at the goal line, and that the one that coincidentally where he drilled JT in the side with yeah. his helmet. Um, I, that almost to me was the bigger deal of the night was to see Jack Sawyer step up the way he did and be such a big part of the solution, uh, regardless of what JT Tuomaloa was doing. So if again, if that sort of performance is consistently coming out of Sawyer, it's it's one of the ways that as we've been talking in these last few weeks about well where can this defense go after it's been playing so well well that's one of the places it can go like if Jack Sawyer now just sort of catches something that at this stage of his third year and and starts playing with a different level I think that's one of the ways that this defense enhances. I didn't have a problem with a touchdown coming out of halftime. I thought Wisconsin just dialed up some good stuff. And yeah, you're gonna give up some stuff every so often. So I, I, I didn't. I wasn't gonna sit there and nitpick that. I was, I was watching it. Well, the key play of that whole thing was the quarterback run. That yeah. was just sort of like a quarterback draw, and I thought that was really well schemed by them, and or something was miscommunicated for Ohio State because mm-hmm. Tommy Eichenberg got left in the middle of the field to like guard the Grand Canyon all by himself, like this mm-hmm. vast expanse in the middle of the field because. Steel Chambers peeled off to go in coverage on a on a on somebody. I can't remember who it was. And Lathan Ransom also went over there. So now all of a sudden, like that whole middle of the field had been vacated. Either that was either just a great design by Wisconsin or somebody read something wrong. Like somebody's eyes did the wrong thing and they weren't in the right place, or they didn't recover from it fast enough. It, regardless, it just left two on one blocking Tommy Eichenberg and nobody else in the middle of the field. So now this your quarterback breaks off a long run and now you're getting into a situation where it's like, well, it's a red zone and once in a while a team will make a play in the red zone and they they dialed up the, the one pass. They gave the guy good protection and that was another situation where it looked like it was ransom and one-on-one coverage with somebody and it's a Big Ten. Like, Big Ten receivers are once in a while going to beat safeties in one-on-one coverage. Like, that's why you try to keep those try to limit those situations so um yeah they gave up you know one touchdown like that's i was talking to andrew about this after the game i can't remember if we said this on the pod but like this is now it's like you go into a game and it's sort of like what these next three weeks are it's like what do you think rutgers michigan state minnesota you think they'll score one touchdown or two like that's that's how you kind of gauge what this defense is going to do on a week-to-week basis like was this is this a one touchdown week or a two touchdown week this yeah, might, you know this might be a two touchdown week. Like PJ Flex, a good coach, and they've got a decent running game, and you know they they can probably scheme some things up. Like this, they maybe look ahead to Michigan. This might be like a two touchdown week, but that's kind of how you start. To, and it's dangerous. We don't want to get too lazy with it, and 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 assume that it'll just be stellar to this degree every week um, without putting some scrutiny on it. But it it sort of feels like that right now. That like, do you think this is like a week where an opponent could maybe get? Like like seventeen points is the high water mark right now mm-hmm. with this defense, and that's impressive to be this far into a season, and especially having played a couple of top ten opponents, and at the time top ten opponents, and still still top twelve opponents, and not have given up twenty points in a game. 
they haven't had a bad game yet. And even really good defenses eventually have a bad game. I was just looking back through history. Well, that's that's a dangerous thought. There are more games left to play. I know. I, yeah, I know that. I, I, that's, yeah. I looked at some stuff. Yeah. There's a really good opponent at the end of the month who was waiting for Ohio State. But just looking at some of the really good defenses over the years, and this is I, I used yards per play as to for best defenses. Clemson in 2014, they allowed 4.03 yards per play. They didn't make the playoff that year. Through eight games, they had given up 20 points in a game once. They did it twice the entire season, and the season high, UNC scored 35. In 2015, Alabama, 4.3 yards per play. They did make the playoff. They also won the national championship. They gave up two games with 20 or more points through eight games, and then one more team did it, and Clemson in the national championship game had 40. And I remember that was like a 45-40 to 40 national championship game, which plays in the days. You got to score 40 points on the stage. Next year, Bama again, 3.99 yards per play through eight games. Two teams had scored at least 20 points. One more team did it. Ole Miss had a high with 43. Alabama in 2017, 3.99 yards per play again. One team had 20 or more points in the game through eight games. Two more did it the rest of the year. Mississippi State scored 24. That was the high for them. I think that's a bar Ohio State can reach where it's like, okay, somebody gets to 24. Mississippi State didn't make the playoff, but they were 4.13 yards per play in 2018. Nobody through eight games had scored 20 or more points, so they're similar to Ohio State. And then Iowa did it. They had 22. Remember, this is back when Iowa used to play offense all those years ago. They scored 22 points in a game. And then Iowa in 20, excuse me, Ohio State in 2019, 4.13 yards per play. The only team through the first eight games to score 20, I believe, was Florida Atlantic in the opener when they scored 20. But the end of that year, five different teams had scored at least 20 points. Penn State, Michigan, Clemson scored the high of 29. So nobody got over 30, but a lot of teams in the 20 range. Iowa in 2020, 4.34 yards per play. Four teams. Through eight games, scored at least 20 points, but then nobody did it again. Penn State with 21 was the high. And then Georgia, that generationally dominant defense, 4.15 yards per play. Nobody through eight games did it, and the only team to do it all year was Alabama in the SEC championship game. And then Iowa once again last year. The only team, two teams did it. The only teams to do it through the first eight games was Ohio State when they put up 54 points per game. 54 points in that win that year, 3.99 yards per play. So there's a map of even when you're a dominant defense sometimes people score 20 plus points and michigan might do it you're gonna have a day or Rutgers might do it or minnesota might do it you're just gonna have a day when a team just pulls off some explosive plays and it doesn't necessarily need to be a black mark on you as a season it's just this is the rare company in ohio state is putting itself in where getting 20 points against these teams were hard but it was still possible for some teams given the week and if the game ended up being a shootout. Yeah, I don't really, I don't anticipate any shootouts this year, right? I think, and it's been it's such a weird like reversal of yeah. thought around this team. Like the whole way that we analyzed Ohio State football these last couple of years, you know, twenty twenty one was like, we'll just get on the same field as Georgia and try to make it a shootout because you'll win that game because you've just got so many weapons and you know uh in, even last year you're like well just you know get into a shootout and they almost like 42 41 like it's it's mm-hmm. right there for them to win it in the national in the semifinals and this year it's if this game it turns into a shootout it's probably gonna not be a shootout it'll probably just be a blowout because you just don't think this offense is going to maybe keep up with a team like that the way that it has in the past but 
I also just don't think it, I, I don't really see a shootout on the table right now, or it'll be a different kind of shootout, right? It's not going to get in the forties, mm-hmm. maybe like in the thirties, like 30 something, 20 something, because sometimes playing great defense in college football is what you do with the other eight possessions when the team didn't score a touchdown, but you, you so you still give up 28 points, but mm-hmm. what'd you do with those other eight possessions? You keep them off the board altogether. That might still be enough to win. That's, that's how we've looked at college football now for a while. And it's why we thought this Ohio State team, if the defense made this kind of jump, was going to be in such a good position. And then the offense just hasn't hasn't been able to come that far along yet. And it still has a month to, to figure that out. I'm just starting to think that if Ohio State does win the most important games of the year, it's going to be by allowing, you know, the 24, 26, 27, and still finding a way to somehow win that game. Uh, but that right now, like they wouldn't have beat Notre Dame like that. They, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like they, it, they, they, they have to, they have to be able to, you know, get more than, than 17 points and 20 points in these matchup games. And no, we're straying away from the defensive case, but the defense, the defense does keep limiting these teams, but this defense also still hasn't seen any of the best offenses in the country. Like Notre Dame, I guess is probably the the closest thing to a really good offense that they have seen. Uh, but that's more of a, it's more of a team that has like some explosive potential, but isn't like consistently a like vertical threat. You know what I'm saying? Like it isn't, it isn't yeah. quite the same as if you get on the field with, with a Washington for sure, or, you know, uh, even what, what Georgia can do with Brock Bowers and guys like that. So I, I think what is most encouraging right now with this defense is that it's, it's it doesn't look cosmetic. It doesn't look like smoke and mirrors. You get to an end of a game, and you're like, "Well, that team, like te- teams, aren't getting to the red zone in the first place. When they get in the red zone, a lot of times they get choked off, like with this goal line stand the other night. So they're they're turning um, drives that would be field goal drives into nothing. They're turning potential touchdown drives into field goals. And they, no matter what offensive approach a team uses they tend to have an answer. And that goes back to, to Indiana when they came out with, you know, the, the, the option that they said that they hadn't prepared for very much. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of adjusted on the fly and, and made some corrections and, and held them to three points. So it makes you think that whoever, if they get to a playoff, whoever they match up with, you still like that matchup for this defense because they're versatile enough. They're well coached enough. They're deep enough, like they can move pieces around and get the right guys on the field for those matchups. Um, it's just a matter of whether now this offense gets them through some of the key games that they'll need to get through to get them into the playoff in the first place. Last thing on this, I know people want us to get to McCourt. I, I, I think it's a playoff issue right now because Rutgers is at, coming into this game averaging 28.1 points per game, and their season high is 31 against Indiana. I think we can both confidently say that Ohio State's going to hold Indiana, uh, Rutgers under 28 points next Saturday. Like, I, I think that's a, a fair bet. Yes. Michigan State averaging 18 points. Their season high is 24. I think we're confident saying Ohio State's going to hold Michigan State under 18 points in two weeks. I think that's a confident yes. to say. Minnesota averaging 21.1 points. Their season high is 34. I think we're confident saying that Ohio State's going to hold Ohio- Minnesota under 21.1 points. I-, I-, I think now that one might be iffy, but I think for the most part, you can confidently say they're going to hold them under 
And then it's the Michigan thing, and their numbers are so skewed because of who their opponents have been. But 40.6 points per game this year. There's high as is 52 points. They did that against Minnesota, and they did it against Indiana. I think that might be a rock fight, too. So I think I would say they hold Ohio, hold Mi- Michigan under 40 points. That game might be played in the 20s, similar to – or maybe the 30s. So it's like the first three weeks – because you guys said this. I think it was in a video, and you were talking about McCord, which we'll get into after the break here. But there's going to come a day when Ohio State's offense is going to have to score more than X amount of points, what it's scoring right now to win a game. It can't rely on its defense that much. And when I heard it, I went, do they, though? Is that game actually going to come during the regular season? Are we sure that Ohio State can't just be 17 to 24 points and go 12 and 0 this year. And we, we, the Michigan thing will be its own conversation, of course, but I think Ohio state can get to 11 and 0 pretty comfortably here. If it only scores 20 to 28 points. Yeah. But uh, I mean, 11 and 0 is the default setting. Now, now that you yeah. know, 11 and 0 is, is yeah, the default setting. And it's more likely that they give up 28 total points in the next three games. And they give up right. 28 in any one of those three games. I think now I just think that you have to find a way against Michigan. Like, listen, in the Notre Dame game, the Penn State game, and the Wisconsin game, I would say they're three toughest games so far. They've scored a total of seven touchdowns. So yeah, that's fair. So two plus touchdowns per game. So I don't think you can beat Michigan scoring less than three touchdowns. And maybe some field goal help mm-hmm. scattered around the edges of it. I don't think you can be. I don't think you can only score two touchdowns and beat Michigan. You've got to find a way to get that third, if not fourth, touchdown to give yourself a chance to win that game. And that's that's just because everything we're saying about this Ohio State defense and how you know relentless and dominant it has been at times, you can apply to the Michigan offense in some ways because just because. And we've had, to, and the reason why you have to do it to Michigan is because you, you we've applied this standard to Ohio State before, frankly, mm-hmm. when they've gone through seasons where they haven't played that many teams. But you're putting up so many points and so many yards, and you're doing it so efficiently and so regularly, and it's like clockwork. That has to mean something. So this defense is doing it right now for Ohio State, but so are other teams, and and I think Michigan is one of them. I think you have to give them at least some respect. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. you assume that they'll score forty against Ohio State, but that they are not that they will be the best offense you have seen, and probably by a pretty wide margin at this mm-hmm. rate. So I think that this offense has to find a way to to not make the defense win that game outright. You know what I'm saying? Like it can't yeah. be like, well, if they score 17, if they score 20, we're in trouble. Like <laughs> if that's what you're going to the Michigan game with, I'm telling you right now. That's rough. I'm not saying that this defense can't hold Michigan under 20. Maybe it can. It's been playing really well. But I think you go into that Michigan game, if if you're just doing the simple math, it's like how do you get from scoring two and a half touchdowns on, on average in these big games? How do you get that to four? Like you got to find a way to bridge that gap in this next month. And by the way, the Wisconsin game is instructive in this, though, because they scored three touchdowns in a field goal against Wisconsin, but they left – probably 10 points on the field between yeah. the red zone interception and the uh, intentional grounding that took them out of sending out the, the field goal unit. So right there, that's 10 points. And the difference between 34 to 10 and 24 to 10, it really looks and feels very different. Okay, let's take a break there because that's 
Kyle McCord stuff that I think has to be touched on. So we'll get into Kyle McCord here when we come back here from the break on Buckeye Talk. Kyle McCord and Ohio State's 24-10 win over Wisconsin, 17 of 26 for 226 yards, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. If you break that up into halves, because at this point you kind of have to do that with him, he's almost two different quarterbacks every single game from the first half to the second half. 10 of 19 for 140 yards and a touchdown and two interceptions in the first half. 7 of 7 for 86 yards and a touchdown in the second half. Steven Means, Nathan Bear talking, Kyle McCord. Nathan, I gave him a C- minus after watching the game. I told the texters that because I, I want to curve it a little bit because the foot's a problem at this point, and it's maybe instructive on some of the throws. But it's not instructive on some of his decisions. Start with the first interception in the red zone. That's a bad throw. And it's a bad decision. Bad throw, bad decision equals an interception. I think the only way that you maybe excuse it is if there's better ball placement and you just put it outside and you have your receiver put his hands out to reach for it. And if he doesn't catch it, it's an incompletion and you keep the ball. You keep, you know, you just live to see another day, but he put it behind the receiver where a defensive player can get to it. And it's an interception in a situation where you probably should have left that situation with points. That's. And from what I was listening to after the game, Brian day kind of agreed with everybody else. And that, that, that interception is on Kyle McCord. Uh, I think unquestionably it was. Now, again, it was a play that got blown up. Like, they, you clearly saw what they tried to do. It was a misdirection play, uh, a play-action thing. They had everything going to the left, and then they curled it back to the right. And Cade Stover was supposed to drag across, and that play was designed for Cade Stover. But he never got there. It was very similar, actually, to the fourth down interception at Indiana in some ways, that the, the primary target there never materialized. So then your back is against the wall a little bit. The problem with it is that Indiana, your back actually was against the wall. It was fourth down. You couldn't, there was no, you throwing it away. didn't do you anything. You just, you took your shot and you did everything you could to keep them from running it back. And that's why I thought the one at Indiana was defensible and not really indicative of anything, but this was, was it first down or second down? Like it was a, it was a, it was a first down play. Was it, was it first? And I nine think it was a first down play. And Either way, like you, you, you're taking points off the board if you do anything yeah. to throw that ball away at that point. And this is, it's what, it's just a matter of efficiency and executing. I don't think they need to change massive things about this offense, and I don't think they need to change massive things about Kyle McCord. I think it's just a matter of getting him into these positions until the switch flips that you've you've got to just throw that ball away and Mm -hmm. justin fields had become pretty good at that by his second year and it's where i I wonder if that's where he had an edge over someone like kyle mccord in this his first experience as a starter because just that time as a and i know he was running mostly like a running package that first year at georgia but just like that familiarity and and being on the field in those situations, I think that probably helped him a lot when he finally took over as a starter in, at Ohio State, and you saw a different level of poise there. Plus, he could also just run it. So he had that, I think, affected his mindset too, that he always had that option. And with McCord, I think there has just been a little bit of 
just trying to do too much at a point where you have to throw that away. And if it was just, if this was the first time we'd seen it, I don't think it would be that much of a topic this week, frankly, because mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. have thrown interceptions before. CJ Stroud threw interceptions last year. Um, you know, you make mistakes once in a while. I just feel like it has been a continuation of things that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. And Kyle McCord keeps getting asked about it over yeah. these last couple of weeks and keeps saying like, yeah, like ball, ball security, like making better decisions there. That, that's got to be, a, you know, I'm on it. I'm, I'm working on it. But it doesn't seem to necessarily be getting a lot better. And that's really his big gulf to try to span here in the next month is to just, if you can eliminate those moments, then the peak moments can stay where they are, I think, right? I think mm-hmm. if you just eliminate those moments, because that's, again, that was what took 10 points off the board in this game. I think part of the reason is there are already bad mistakes in a vacuum but they keep happening at the worst possible time that you would have a mistake where it's, whether it's this past week where it's taking points off the board or it's the Penn state version where you're in the red zone, you're moving it, you're moving it down the field. And I I think that's playing a role into this is they might have 28 extra points this year. If you really started adding it up, if we really wanted to go through every single one of these Kyle McCord tried to make a play when he should have just threw the ball away and lived to see another day. There's probably 28 extra points in there for Ohio State. We're talking about a whole different offense right now without that. If you're giving this offense 28 extra points, now there's yeah, still things to figure it out, but I, I don't know. It might be with the, I the way they've been moving. I wouldn't say a whole different there. offense. I wouldn't say a whole different offense. I think you would just say a better version of this offense, a, just a more efficient version of this offense. Again, it's just a matter of you know they all the things that they did. Let's say it wasn't even a touchdown. Let's say they would have got held to a field goal on the win when he threw it an interception. But between that one and the one that gets and the opportunity gets taken away by the grounding later, so that's six more points. So then you're talking about between thirty to ten and twenty four mm-hmm. to ten, and that both looks and feels different on in real time, and then as it's seen, you know, across college football, and that only matters to to some extent. But it matters a little bit, and it matters even more, though, when you start talking about what we were just talking about as it relates to getting into the Michigan game. It's you, you, can't, like, you can't afford six vanishing points against mm-hmm. Michigan. Like Those six points might decide whether you are in a playoff or whether we're asking a bunch of questions about which guys are opting out of whatever bowl game you go to. Like that, like six points are are massive that week potentially, mm-hmm. and that's what they've got. They've got to find a way to hold on to those six points and hold on to the ball to get those six points. And what I think is also maybe concerning, concerning is the wrong word. Concerning maybe too strong. It's just this came up. I don't remember. Was it after the Indiana game or after the Youngstown State game? There was which. It was maybe it was Youngstown State where he had a he had a strip sack in that game too, right? Early mm-hmm. on, was it Youngstown or yeah. Western Michigan? I think it was Youngstown. Yeah, but coming out of that game, it might have been right after the game. Talking, he said, you know, McCord said he had talked a day, and that you know the message there was like this: a sack doesn't hurt you, but a strip sack does. Mm-hmm. And the strip sack that he had in this game was on fourth down, so it doesn't apply quite to the same level. But just the idea of the ball security. And and what you do when you run into when you encounter something unexpected, the same logic applies. That you know, if 
if Kyle McCord had gotten sacked for a big loss on that 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 goal line play, it still is a thousand times better than just giving the ball to the other team. Like mm-hmm. the risk reward on that throw wasn't worth it. So it's just making better risk reward analysis in the moment. And some of that is things that I think it's fair to critique him on and say that sh- that's got to be a little sharper at this stage of the year. But we're also in that, that transitional part of the year where you really are transitioning from new starter to like, oh, you've been doing this all year. Like some of that should click. So slightest, 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 like remaining hint of benefit of the doubt for like, okay, maybe that was the last teachable moment he needed. But it it, it happened early this year. He talked about, he specifically said, yes, the conversation was the taking the sack is not as bad as losing the ball. And now you're still getting in situations where they're losing the ball when those when those situations arise. We're nine weeks into the season, eight games in, and both of us have now written a story, Nathan, for the site about Kyle McCord talking about how, yeah, I got to improve on this issue. Each of the past two weeks. <laughs> it, it didn't, and nothing has changed here. I want to talk about the second interception, just to bring it up. I, I mentioned Ricardo Hallman on the preview pod last Thursday, last Wednesday, Friday, excuse me. I thought Ricardo just made a good play. Now, could he have maybe not telegraphed the pass so much? Probably. And maybe anticipated it a little bit better? Probably. But Ricardo Hallman was in cover three. He wasn't even near to play. And he read Kyle McCord's eyes and he jumped the pass. That, that you know, you almost, I don't want to say you live with those interceptions, but those are going to happen when you throw 25 plus passes in a game. Is every so often when you're playing a good cornerback, they're going to make a play on the ball. So kudos to Ricardo Hallman, who already came into the game with four interceptions, one of which was a pick six. He just, he just made a good play on the ball. Yeah. And, you know, Ryan Day explained that after the game. And, and on the rewatch, I, I saw more of what he was saying about it than in real time. But it, it, it just, amplifies why you can't do the other thing like because once in a while a guy will make a play like he will yeah. do that so you, you can't give it away on the other opportunities it, and and it, and also one of those things that that is that to me comes across as more of a legitimate teachable moment where like mm-hmm. maybe you hadn't seen like in practice did you ever have a db actually try to do that to you is it something that you even can really anticipate the same way um mm-hmm. You know, again, like great quarterbacks, great quarterbacks throw interceptions once in a while. Like you make a mistake, you make a bad read, a guy makes a play. It's it it happens every once in a while. I think that's why you just have to weed out the egregious ones, because that one doesn't look I didn't come out. I didn't think of that. That one was only almost notable in conjunction with the other one. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Because if if only that one happens. You go, okay, he's thrown two interceptions this year. Like, they're okay, but in conjunction. I don't know. Kyle McCord has now started nine games in his career, eight games this season. And there are four games left. I don't know if this step happens this year. And if it does, it does. Okay. But, well, but I don't, what's the I, step? Like, what, what do we think the step is? I don't know if you can rely on him for 60 minutes to go win you a game. I think you can rely on him in the moments where I I said this to the Texas, when it's winning time, I think he's actually been pretty awesome. Whether you're talking 
you know, second half against Penn State, the second half this past Saturday against Wisconsin, the, you know, the last drive, the game-winning drive against Notre Dame. When it's time for him to be on, he is on. But the consistency of it through a 60-minute game, I feel con- – if he throws – 12 passes in the second half. I feel confident about all 12 passes. If he throws 30 passes in a game, those first half passes are going to be all over the place. So I think that that's what I mean by step to where he's the reason why this offense is so awesome, or at least on the list of reasons. I don't think that's going to be true this year, but I don't think it matters. I think we, we never thought that had to happen. No, but you would at least – you didn't think it had to happen, but you just given how the quarterback position has weighed out here, you it was fair to expect that at some point it was going to happen this year, and no, it's clearly I mean, we not. Didn't talk, that's not how we talked about this at all before the season. We talked all season about how this was definitely going to be a regression from the quarterback production that we saw in the previous four seasons, and that anything outside of that was going to be sort of a pleasant surprise. And I, for for me, the step with Kyle McCord isn't that all of a sudden he comes out and does the C.J. Stroud laser show. I think to me, the step is that he throws that ball away. That's the step. Like, that's the one step that this offense needs him to take. Or that he uh, doesn't, like, we haven't talked yet about the intentional groundings. There were two of them later in this game. Um, I think Tishu might have even yeah. said on Twitter, like, I think he leads the league. In, he must lead the nation. Yeah, in he texted that to me, too. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's the one was especially bad. Like, there was mm-hmm. one that he threw that, like, Josh Fryer, when well, maybe he just got confused, but, like, Josh Fryer was the only person anywhere close to it. And, you know, Josh Fryer did a good job, I guess, of just, like, making doing what an offensive lineman's supposed to do, which is, like, not catch that ball. But the, the one of the two, like, it was very close to just being a backwards pass. And that would have been, like, yet another lost fumble in a game where you already had the two interceptions and the lost fumble on fourth down. And, like, it, it, it you have to – he just – I think the step for Kyle McCord that enhances Ohio State's national championship potential significantly is just handling disaster better. And the small disasters that might happen play to play, like when a, a small disaster happened when Kyle, when Kate Stover wasn't available to get over to be the primary receiver, and the other two guys recovered. Small disaster, you're on the run, things are sped up, it's hectic, and how do you handle that better? You throw the ball away. How do you handle it better when on both of those groundings, guys were in his face like immediately, like mm-hmm. it was almost like jailbreaks both times, and he panicked and. In in one of those cases, it was more of a downfield throw. So it was the second one of the two that was more of a downfield throw that they called grounding on. There was no receiver in the in the neighborhood. Um, so maybe just having a better awareness of of where the escape hatch is that you can throw the ball away in that direction and not get to grounding. Uh, the the first one is the the more problematic one, the one where it was almost a backwards pass that would have just in the been third a quarter. Yeah, yeah. So it's just handling disaster better and. He made a good point, I thought, last week at availability, talking about, you know, you're not live in practice. It's harder to replicate disaster in practice for a quarterback mm-hmm. sometimes. And maybe they have to think of some more creative ways to do that. You know, in the spring, when the defensive line was beating the crap out of the offensive line and and pressuring him and, and Devin Brown a lot, a lot of those plays get blown dead very fast. 
Like they're not necessarily letting those play out because again, the, the quarterbacks aren't live. So it, it's just, it's a different world. And I don't know how you better visualize it to better handle that when it starts to happen, but they have to do it because I don't think the other, the other question here is, will the offensive line raise its level and start negating how often he's in those disaster situations? doesn't apply to the red zone. I'm talking about the two groundings where I think both cases third, it was. One like was were, third and eight and one was third and nine. And it's, I mean, guys I, were on top of him. Yeah. And like that can't happen either. So that that has to stop first. Like let make that stop yeah. first. But but also in conjunction with that, he just has to handle disaster better. I think if all of his numbers stay the same, but he throws the ball away on that second down, and even if he just takes sacks on the groundings, it's not really any different, right? And you take away the 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 scare, the the the, op, the potentiality for one of those throws getting picked off, one of those throws ending up as a backward pass that you didn't intended, which almost happened, I think you're better off just eating it. Because even though this offense has lost its explosive ability to some point, especially on third down there, you're going to punt it anyway. Um, but on an earlier down, you still got Marvin. It's like third and 16, you still got Marvin. Or you still got a screen, you still got something you can try. You can't if the other team's got the ball. So I really don't think it's as a big... I know that people came out of Saturday with consternation about McCord. And I think I gave him the same grade. I think I gave him a C minus after the game because I definitely wanted to factor in the fact that something is wrong, was wrong physically. But the 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 big move that he needs to make is not a huge move. It's not that he has to he has to take a jump to be this to be an upper echelon quarterback. And that's how Ohio State wins a national championship because I that I don't think is going to happen. You're right, but I don't. That has never ever been the way we talked about this team, and it and it, it especially hasn't been the way we talked about this team since the defense clicked mm-hmm. into this next level. At since that point, it's all been about him managing the game and avoiding those mistakes, not putting points on the board for the other team, not giving the ball to the other team. If he just does that, if it's just stability, if he can just provide more stability in those few moments of game that are going really haywire that makes this offense a lot better because it just, it you have to, if you just take the risk out, if you keep all of the reward and take in and, and eliminate that risk, I, I think that alone puts more points on the board over the course of a game or certainly the course of a season. And it, it keeps points off the board from the other team. Eight weeks in, are you still confident that that's a fixable issue in 2023? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I do. I think so. Because I think you're also getting into a stretch of the year where, um, depending on his health, and we'll see how much he's able to practice and what he's able to do. Um, I mean, he really was hobbling on on Saturday. And he- it would behoove Ohio State to um, really come out and, like, smash mouth on the in, in the running game, probably. Like, really, like, dig some guys out mm-hmm. on Saturday and and score a bunch of touchdowns that way and maybe get him on the sideline, get your Tristan Jebbia, his moment in the sun. Um, assuming that assuming McCord's not hurt so bad that he can't start on Saturday. It doesn't seem like that. Um, I, they need to get like, probably give him a break, but I think there's, they've just got to find some creative ways to, to, to do this in practice. I don't know how you do it when the quarterback isn't live, um, but you've got to do something. You've got to do something to like put them in those, 
everything's gone haywire situations. Now, what do you do? And I, and it's not that they don't do it. I just feel like maybe there's a way. Can you do, do you amplify it this, this week, the next few weeks to try to just like get him, get him thinking in that mindset. Uh, I mean, at halftime, Ryan day was asked on the TV broadcast, what does comic need to do? And it was trust your eyes, trust your feet mm-hmm. and, um, and manage the game. Yep. That's all he's been saying from the start of the year. And when he says manage the game, I don't think he's talking about necessarily dink and dunk and 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 um checkdowns and stuff like just that. Keep Although us on those, schedule. those things have their use. But I think it's just don't don't try to do too much. Don't do more than what's been asked of you. And what all that was asked of him on that play, and it's I'm sure it's hard in the moment. I'm sure it's hard because you want to score the touchdown. The touchdown's right there, and things didn't transpire the way they were supposed to. But what has Ryan Day said since day one, going back to the start of this quarterback competition, uh, has been, you know, one of the big evaluations was what does somebody do when things don't go according to plan? And Kyle McCord is clearly the one, is clearly the quarterback on this roster that handled that better, or he wouldn't mm-hmm. be the one starting right now. So that's the other thing I think it needs to be said. I know there was a lot, looking through our text Saturday night, a lot of people were frustrated, but we have no evidence right now that Devin Brown, if he were healthy, no. would be better than, than Kyle McCord. No. And I, I don't think that Tristan Jebbia has the game-to-game ceiling and performance ceiling that Kyle McCord has either. So this is the guy. He just needs to not make those mistakes. You will take, like, okay, he missed some other throws. That I don't think worries people that much. I think it is the mistakes and potentially giving the ball or literally giving the ball to the other team that gets people squeamish. And all you got to do is reduce that. And I I think it's reducible. I wonder if there are some things in pre-snap that can help with that. Because that was the thing with CJ is CJ was just a film junkie and was so good pre-snap that he had the answers to the test that when things didn't go the right way, the ball was already out of his hand, so it didn't matter. Justin Fields was a freak athlete. So, okay, things broke down. Goodbye. I'm going to go take off. How does Kyle McCord is probably going to have to answer that similar to what CJ Stroud did than, than Justin Fields because he's not that type of athlete. So are there things that he can learn when he's watching film where it's like, okay, I noticed this or I noticed that, that this is about to go crazy. As soon as I snap this ball, how do I get rid of this ball quickly so I don't put myself in those situations where I am holding on to the ball or trying to make a play that's not there because the ball is already out of my hands? I think that, but then also it's probably worth asking Day a quarterback question of how important that front foot is when you're trying to throw the ball. Because he did leave the game. Somebody, uh, somebody from NBC put up a video of Kyle McCord leaving the game. He had ice on his left ankle which is his front ankle when he's throwing the ball and if he can't plant that would explain why against Purdue he was throwing off of his back foot so much that would explain some of these throws he's making I I sent this text out a couple of weeks ago how somebody had asked Kyle McCord during the midweek about his ankle and he downplayed it he obviously you know didn't want to even go down that road but it was something interesting then and now that we're here it's very very interesting that if he can't plant on his front foot how much of that is impacting some of his throw, not his decision-making because that's still a bad interception regardless of whether or not your ankle is healthy or not. But some of his throws, 
I'm wondering how much that's impacting things if he can't plant on his front foot as much. And since Ryan Day is a quarterback coach by trade and also played the position, who better to ask that question to about how important that front foot is as a quarterback yeah. when you're trying to push the ball down the field? I asked Day after the game that question. Well, it wasn't okay. specifically about the left foot, but I just said, how hurt is Kyle and is that affecting some of the decisions that we're seeing him make on the mm-hmm. field? And he said he did not think it was a factor in in those decisions. Um, he said that, you know, something may have happened the way I guess he, he termed it, like something might have happened during the game, like either exasperating the injury or a new thing that he was dealing with. Mm-hmm. But that in neither of the cases of those interceptions would I say anything fundamental in the throwing motion was a miss. Like it was just, it was just a, one was a bad decision. And one, I guess we'll call a, a, a play where the, the guy just beat you just out, just baited you a little bit and beat you and, and made the right play. Uh, those didn't have really anything to do with fundamentals. I have seen the back foot throws. There are times though, where, you know, the back foot throw, is still just throwing it up to Marvin one on one, and it works just fine. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, I I said to you, I think I said to both of you guys in the press box a couple of weeks ago, like there's a quarterback that he reminds me of sometimes in two ways, and it's it, it was Jay Cutler, and <laughs> I know there's people out there that are, get terrified when you hear Jay Cutler, but Jay Cutler was actually a, a very good like college and uh, you know like a Pro Bowl level NFL quarterback sometimes, and but the reasons that he, he reminds me of him was, A, how much recently he's been throwing off his back foot. Because that was a Cutler thing. It was the one thing I didn't like about Cutler as a someone who followed the Bears was like how often he threw off his back foot. I thought it was problematic at times. But also he's just very, um, what's the word I want to use? Like he's kind of stoic out there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't his, his expression doesn't change very much on the field. And you saw, now it did after the Notre Dame game. Like he was obviously losing his mind at the end of the Notre Dame game. But like play to play, it's very like, you know, what do I want to say? Just like very bold face, like just like just no change in his expression mm-hmm. from play to play to play. And I've covered other guys who are like that and in different sports. And I think I, there are fans who have a tough time with that, I think, mm-hmm. because they feel like it looks like indifference or or things like that. And I, I that I do not believe at all is an issue with, with comic court. Um, it may be a reason why fans haven't quite connected with him yet, but I also think it's something that he shouldn't waste any time trying to fake. I think he just is who he is. And again, I think if you clean up those few poor decisions, um, that game looks a lot different, and really his season to this point looks a lot different. All of this, too, is coming out of Notre Dame and the way that game finished that seemed like an arrival. That seemed like an announcement of sorts, right? And like, okay, well now, so that was my first four games, and I did that. That was like the exclamation point. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take this week, and I'm going to come back and do the next eight games. And then these last four have been fine, and Mm -hmm. they're 4-0, but it hasn't been what you, that term you used before, like the next step Mm -hmm. in terms of production. Um, They did have like a 300-yard game, and there are a couple of them. Like there has been production, but it hasn't it hasn't been the next step in terms of what it looks like, I guess is the best way to say it. He's been good, but he's not maximizing the offense yet. And 
Maybe and you know maybe it doesn't have to. It's like just throw it all up to eighteen. But also, and let's see what happens. You know, yeah. Like, so it didn't have didn't really have a run game at times and yeah, some of those games so, too. Like yeah, those things those things matter. I, so it's it's fine. It, it's he's he's been fine, and that's and they're eight zero at the end of the day. So it's fine. Nothing he has done has cost them a game yet. I do think the emotion that the the lack of emotion he shows out there. I don't think that's a problem because there are people who don't like that, but then there are also people who didn't like that CJ Stroud show too much emotion sometimes. So it's just, you know, yeah. you can't make everybody happy, but he's been fine. I just think that I, I'm, I think you worded it better to me. There are some bugs in his game that you thought would be fixed by now and they haven't been fixed. And you have to keep it in the back of your mind that maybe someday you play an opponent where that bug actually does cost you a game because so far it hasn't. And some of that is because the penalty has come into play. Some of that is because your defense has been awesome. Some of that is because Marvin Harrison Jr. and Trayvon Henderson have been awesome. But so far, it has not come to bite him in the butt. And it's the only topic of concern with him is when does that bad decision cost him? But then also how, how healthy is that foot or ankle or whatever it is that's going on with that left side of his body? And is that impacting him whatsoever? That'll wrap up this very long Monday rewatch Buckeye talk, but I wasn't on the post game pod and I had some things to say, so I apologize that this was a little bit longer. <laughs> so, as you're listening to this, yeah, um, I'm gonna hop on another pod with Andrew, and we'll be talking recruiting. We'll be talking five star defensive lineman Justin Scott. Nathan and Andrew were out there to see him on Friday night. Well, though, to my knowledge, at least from what they were texting, he didn't play too much, but that's because he plays for an awesome team and. They didn't play well, somebody was that was too. okay. That he was hurt. So find out more about that on the Tuesday pod, and then on Wednesday, you know, we'll be reacting to what Ryan Day and Jim Knowles have to say as they prepare to play Rutgers on Saturday. So for Nathan Baird, I'm Stephen Means, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>